If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars. And this is episode 429 of the Columbia Calling podcast. Our very special guest this week is Emily Hauser. She is an expert in human rights. She's based in Washington, D.C. Uh, we talked to her about the January 6th uh, hearings in the USA and, of course, relate it to what happened in Colombia uh, regarding the Paro Nacional in 2019 and 2021. And she brings in her, well, her expertise on the historic Colombian figure, or the historic, historic neo-Granadine figure of Antonio Nariño, uh, who, of course, was indeed very much invested into human rights. And uh, it's just a fascinating conversation about a period of history and a character and an individual that I know so little about. I think he was three times imprisoned. Anyway, I'm going to leave it to Emily because she's the expert. So we'll go over now to news with Emily Hart, and then we'll be back with Emily Hauser uh, talking about Antonio Nariño, talking about civil unrest, Colombian history, linking it to Les Miserables, and all sorts of curious anecdotes, but uh, a fantastic conversation that I know you'll enjoy. So don't go away, and thank you for listening. And of course, a couple of word messages from our sponsors. The Columbia Calling Podcast is sponsored by latinnews.com. That's Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all this week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. And also, this episode is brought to you by BNB Colombia Tours, expert in custom-made travel throughout Colombia. The team at uh, BNB Colombia Tours can provide you with fantastic private experiences, creating wonderful memories of Colombia for a lifetime. Check out the website at bnbcolombia.com, complete the free itinerary form, and tell them that Columbia Calling sent you to receive a further 5% off their already great prices. So check out latinnews.com and BNB Columbia Tours. Thank you again, and don't go away. I'm Emily Hart, and this is an election special of your weekly news update for the week of Monday, June 20th, 2022. Gustavo Petro is to be Colombia's first ever left-wing president, elected with 50% of the vote at the runoff election on Sunday 
ushering in a new era of politics for the country. He won by a 3% margin amid the highest turnout in more than two decades at nearly 60%. We are writing history, a new history for Colombia. What is coming is real change, said Petro in his first address as president-elect. He pledged to govern with dialogue and unity, including with those who ran and voted against him in order to reach peace and progress and to become, in his words, one Colombia even with all our diversity. Petro, now 62, joined urban guerrilla group M19 in the 1980s, then demobilized and has spent three decades in political opposition. He had run for president twice before this year, reaching the runoff in 2018 and serving as leader of the opposition since then. He made a name for himself in politics through anti-corruption work, opening a national debate about the links between the country's political elite and right-wing paramilitaries, war crimes, and death squads. Having also been mayor of Bogotá, he has now won his third attempt at the presidency, ousting Colombia's political establishment in the process. Petro campaigned on a ticket of transformation, promising a structural reform of Colombia's systems and institutions to include the excluded. He said he would make universities free and promised energy transition, an end to Colombia's oil exploration and fracking projects in order to mitigate climate change. He also proposed land reform, raising taxes on the wealthiest and supporting routes to land ownership for small tenant farmers and local cooperatives. Francia Marquez will be his vice president, an award-winning environmentalist and the first ever Afro-Colombian woman to fill the role. She has formed a key part of Petro's campaign and his popularity, promoting feminism, racial equality, and environmentalism. She has made direct appeals to Los Nadie, the nobodies, those marginalized and excluded by politics and neglected by the state. Petro and Marquez won against populist wildcard and eccentric multimillionaire Rodolfo Hernández, who ran on an anti-corruption ticket, gaining 47% of the vote. Despite fears of a contested election, Hernández immediately accepted the results. There were parties in the streets of Cali and Bogotá last night, but not everyone feels optimistic about Petro's coming mandate. Some feel he is too radical and will bring instability. Petro, meanwhile, has pledged to turn Colombia into a world power for life, though his first challenge will be uniting a deeply divided country. Colombia remains polarized, and he faces staunch opposition, both within Congress and among Colombian citizens. He is the leader, the leader of the biggest party in Congress, known as the Historic Pact, but remains well short of a majority. His first task will be to forge the alliances needed to fulfill the big promises he has made to the electorate and to ensure governability. Petro joins a wave of left-wing leaders who have come to power in Latin America since the start of this decade, many of whom have already taken to Twitter to congratulate him, including the leaders of Mexico, Chile and Peru. Gustavo Petro will be inaugurated as the 42nd president of Colombia on August the 7th of this year. That was your update for this week. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next Monday.
And we're back. This is episode 429 of the Columbia Calling Podcast. I'm Richard McCall, as you well know. My very special guest is now you'll have to you'll have to forgive me, Emily, but Emily Hauser. Hauser? Hauser. Hauser. Emily Hauser. She's in Washington, D.C. She holds a master's in human rights from up there. And well, I don't know. I, I would call her a Venezuela or perhaps New Nueva Granada historian because her knowledge of Antonio Nariño is second to none. And in fact, over, I would say now, over more than a year, I get peppered with tweets about Antonio Nariño and I feel somewhat out of my depth because I don't know that much about it because my my knowledge of Colombian history is I mean is incredibly contemporary it goes back a bit but in, in um, contemporary so we're going to discuss sort of Colombian Venezuelan history and so on uh, uh, but she's in Washington DC and we are recording this ahead of time uh, and I and I know right now, that the January 6 hearings are taking place up there. How does it feel to be in that position? Oh, we are rather tense at the moment as yeah. this definitely for us crossed the line as not a peaceful demonstration, but a violent act to force a particular viewpoint on the country. So. And it def- I was at home in New Jersey at the time where I'm originally from and as someone that knows and loves the capital very well, mm. I had a mixed sense of indignation mm. mixed with heartbreak about how now people are resort- resorting to violence to solve their differences. Mm. That That's a, uh... That's a very Colombian thing. It's resorting to violence for differences <laughs> and in Venezuela too. Um, and it, it, I mean, we obviously we're we're talking before anything is actually declared, but it does seem that it was a totally orchestrated event. It wasn't just on the spur of the moment, uh, you know, a few uh, sort of rogue elements getting in. I mean, how do you feel? There rather was for years. We've had a escalation, rather like a volcano. I don't want to blame one individual in particular, but it felt like we were brewing and brewing under the surface and there were many different factors at play that culminated into this volcanic explosion that we saw on January 6th Mm. but deeper than that there was elements of polarizing rhetoric and differing the others and different groups as unquote threats and that resulted in the violence we saw. And, and I mean, I think here, if we relate it to here, I always feel that the tension builds, the tension builds. There is, let's say, you know, there are demonstrations. The government's response is always, uh, you know, that if the government responds appropriately, this can deflate the tension. In Colombia, when we had 2019 and 2021, the sort of nationwide and and so on, which were then, you know, when we look at Cali, which were then sort of usurped by, uh, in the southern city of Cali, by, uh, I would say, organized crime, whereas in Bogota, it was still a political thing. But uh, the, the government didn't respond appropriately and didn't dispel the tension. Uh, how is, you know, did that one act 
that one act, that one day, did it deflate tension afterwards or has it all now, is it now reached a plateau where we're, we're still waiting for answers? We are definitely in a plateau right now. And it's a rather difficult situation because people by nature react. So one act of violence will create a reaction or instinct on the other half, which will result in more force. Uh-huh. So we're trying to find a way to diffuse the situation and address the root causes of this mm-hmm. problem. Because it was it was an interesting situation. I know, and then we'll close this 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 chapter here. But it was an interesting situation when we see this happening, you know, with those of us sitting here in Colombia, which are, you know, we're used to sort of uncertainty and instability. And and I mean, I live very close to uh, part of a national university, which is a hotbed for, let's say, purist leftist thought, I would say, is the most polite way of putting it, purist leftist thought. Um, And they're always, when they don't like something, they're out there throwing bricks, and then there's uh, tear gas thrown. And so, so, you know, it's not unusual to see. But then we're getting the articles in the press, and then, of course, the the memes on social media, look what's happening in Washington. (laughs) I mean, the the comparison was obviously made, wasn't it? I mean, suddenly suddenly the DC is uh, in, how to best put this, DC is resembling more of a a developing, uh, part of the developing world (laughs) with an immature political situation. And Colombia looks, well you know, stable. <laughs> one, one thing that really spoke to me, you don't mind me bringing in a little bit of France, right? Go so on. I am a big fan of Les Miserables, both yeah. the musical and the book. And I did my master's thesis on the human rights violations that led to the June Rebellion and how the June Rebellion, although relatively forgotten, influences democracy movements in Belarus and Venezuela through Les Mis. Mm. And the real-life leader of the rebellion had a very strong code of honor on the barricades. Some people believed it was excessive because even something as ripping a pamphlet, he saw as an act of escalation. But one of his reasons was he believed agitators and escalators creating tension would result in the other side justifying a violent response, Mm -hmm. which that really spoke to me as very interesting. Yeah. I'm not saying it's the case with anything, but I definitely made me think more about the importance of peaceful protesting and how one little act could result in such a terrible accumulation. But we always we always think of the one act because it becomes the historic point about which all the narratives are written. You say that that tearing up of the uh, of the pamphlet here in Colombia, for example, when it was the 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 sort of I was a Creole uh, business owner called Llorente who was asked by the Spanish uh, Empire, let's say Spanish leaders, in, in to lend his vase for the arrival of someone else because it was a vase that was very beautiful and they wanted to decorate somewhere or something for it. And of course, Llorente said no and threw it on the ground and smashed it. And that's sort of seen as a kickoff. And you're like, 
well, you know, the breaking of a vase, but it's the spark to a already, you know, primed tinderbox. And, and that, so therefore your pamphlet as well is the spark. Of course, when you look at France, I mean, everyone says, oh, it's because of the, the hunger beforehand. No, it's a, it's a pile up of the situation. And there's a political, psychological reality of what's going on in a country. I mean, these things don't happen like that. <laughs> they exactly. <don't. laughs> it's a lot. A wise political leader must listen to the concerns of his people <laughs> and information that leads to people committing violent acts against their fellow citizens or against their fellow humans really should absolutely be diffused. Mm-hmm. And it shows the importance of a dialogue too between sides. Yeah. That dialogue doesn't happen. That's when very hateful and harmful narratives happen against the other. Of course, now back to Colombia, there was no dialogue. Uh, Our president did not address any of the situations in uh, the strikes in 2021. He was saved in 2019. There was the Gran Mesa de Dialogo y Conversación, which was, again, a way of stalling. Uh, a way of you doing nothing, and then the, the and then the pandemic came in, so that that mesa could be lifted. So, but let's talk about this. You got heavily involved in transcribing the Declaration of Rights. All right, uh, uh, tell us about this. What went through your mind? You said, "I'm going to transcribe this," because I know at one point you were going to like, uh, is it you were going to broadcast them on a government building? This is an interesting story. So um, I, it was 2020 and it was the beginning of lockdown. Mm. And I recently was in the process of wrapping up my master's capstone. And I thought it'd be a fascinating idea to start transcribing the Declaration of Rights into as many languages as I could find it mm. to compare the way rights are translated across languages Most of these were romance languages. I also mixed in a few dramatic ones and a few Slavic ones. I'm really curious if there's any countries to date where the Declaration of Rights of Man and Citizen might still be banned. It sounds like this is the case, but I'm not going to state before I have some proof. And I ended up translating the document myself into English to give a modern and contemporary translation of this document. And within then, I remember the story of Antonio Nariño, who got arrested and really subjugated to the worst brutality just for translating the same document I transcribed. And that really shined a new light on the whole situation. And when the crisis in Ukraine started, my or the war in Ukraine, my war building faces the Senate. And there were a few um, empty apartments by me. And a friend and I thought it'd be a really good show of solidarity to enlarge the Declaration of Rights in Ukrainian and paste it on all of the windows. (laughs) However, we cannot get the fonts big enough, no matter how often we played with the printer. That's a lot of paper as well. I think if you had to to play with that. But so this gave you the, the insight into Antonio Nariño. And now, I'll talk for myself. I don't know a lot about Antonio Nariño. Give us a little bit of background. You know, who was he? Let's listen to the era and so on. Let's uh, let's hear from your your historical, your profound historical knowledge on this fact. Absolutely. So he was born April 9th, 1765 in Bogota, Colombia to a rather well-to-do family. 
He, as a child, was very sick and very fragile. So his parents educated him at home in his wonderful library of over 2,000 books. Hmm. Marino devoured books. He read Las Casas. He read Rousseau, Montesquieu, Voltaire. And he also read a lot of these scholastics, such as hmm. Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine. And he had this thirst for knowledge, a desire to learn as much as he could. He hosted little intellectual gatherings with his friends where they would discuss democracy and the free press, and they were filled with idealism. And then one day, he was in his late 20s, around 29 years old. He thought it'd be a great idea to translate the Declaration of Rights of Man and Citizen, Mm. as he got the text of the document from a friend of his who was a trusted official. Mm. So when Nadine translated it, he heard, you know, this document might actually get you in trouble, so maybe you should have translated it. And he thought, I don't think so. There's nothing really controversial here. The free press, natural law. Thomas Aquinas says the same thing. And Mm. we all read Thomas Aquinas. And he did, for safekeeping, burn the translations he had because he had six children and a young wife, and he didn't want harm to come to them. However, somebody turned him in. And as he was facing the royal tribunal, they interrogated him for, you're trying to bring the French Revolution to the colonies and you're trying to overthrow the system. Mm. And Nadine insisted, I was just translating a document so people could understand and have a dialogue about human rights. I'm not trying to bring the French Revolution to America. That's not my goal. However, they then laid other charges on him that were not true, such as one was embezzlement and a couple others just random things they were pulling out of the book, and none of it was proven. His So he was arrested and sent to 10 years of exile in Africa. Huh. However, he escaped when the ship docked in Spain. The details here are a little blurry. I'm not sure how he was able to escape. There's a lot of legends surrounding it. And he he escaped and in Spain tried getting the king's approval, but he was sensing people didn't like what he was doing and they didn't like what he stood for. So he fled to France and fled to England. And finally, he returned to Colombia to see his wife and children. He was in disguise, but he was captured and turned in. His lawyer wrote an excellent defense of Nariño, um, Jose Antonio Ricarte, ah. and he mentioned how none of the words of the Declaration of Rights are prohibited because all of it is either found in the Bible or it's found in Aquinas. And he went detail by detail. At the time, Nariño was having anxiety attacks and some other illnesses, such as beginning tuberculosis, which they get hard for him to defend himself. And they kept saying that he said, confess the things that he didn't confess to. So Ricarte wrote this excellent defense and that Ricarte was arrested and tragically died in the dungeons. Nariño was getting sicker and sicker. And this is where his wife, Magdalena Nariño, really takes center stage. She writes to the king, writes to the queen, writes to every official possible saying, you are violating the Spanish 
principles you say you stand for of justice. He is dying of tuberculosis. He has a heart condition. You're denying him medical treatment. They ignored her, but finally the archbishop listened to her. They went into the dungeons, and Nadinho was indeed almost near death at this point. They got him out, and he recovered. And he recovered enough to... He tried living a peaceful, quiet life with his books, but as winds of rebellion started brewing again, the government arrested him for just for having different opinions. They had no proof. They had no evidence. They just abducted him one day and tossed him in a dungeon in Cartagena. Uh. His son tried accompanying him, and his son as well was arrested and tossed into that dungeon. And there were some rather graphic details I saw in the accounts of what happened to the both of them. Made me very indignant. He was released when another rebellion came. There was a lot of twists and turns in his life. And he started a little periodical called The Bagatella, where he advocated a lot for indigenous rights and human rights for all people. But so, I mean, this guy, Narino, he, you know, despite translating something that, or that, the the language is in the Bible and he's not making anything. He is seen as as subserf, subversive. He is obviously, and it, you know, it's it's very easy. It's, I think it's easier then than now just to say you think difficult differently uh, and throw you in jail. Although this practice has <laughs> been proven to uh, occur again and again and again. Um, but why, I mean, was he in Cartagena living there when he, he was thrown in the dungeons there, or did they move him up to Cartagena? They moved him. He was in Bogota. Yeah. And it sounds like he was abducted and then arbitrarily detained. Uh-huh. He did not know the reasons for his detention. He was asking, they refused to give it to him. And they made him get on a horse that was very ill. And Arino mentioned, this is cruelty to the horse. This is awful. And, of course, it's cruelty to my rights to abduct yeah. me without a cause. They sent him from Bogota to Cartagena and then subjugated him to a dungeon that was meant for people who were sentenced to die. Okay, so it's like a like, kind of like an oubliette type, type yeah. thing. It's like you die in there. So that would have meant they did the, 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 the week or several week long, because it was going down from Bogota to Onda on a, on a lame horse. And then he would have done the Magdalena River because that was the way up, which is when you read any, any diary or from the period or later is what was one of the most arduous journeys. Uh, so I can only imagine if you if you were going, were going like as uh, in a, you know, for, for on, if you were doing this journey for pleasure, it was arduous. If you were doing this person as someone who was abducted, it would be, I mean, I just think awful. Even So, I mean, he represents something and Ricaorte, obviously as well, uh, Ricaorte represents something. But so you said that Ricaorte died in prison in Bogota, his lawyer? He was also transferred to Cartagena and died there. Okay. So that would have been in, I mean, it wasn't the Castillo San Felipe at that time, but it probably would have been around the Bovidas in Cartagena. Uh, right. it was. Yeah, so that would have been, I'm sure there's a plaque or something up there, but I, that would have been around the Bovidas. And so, I mean, 
you know, his writings, human rights, and we put it into context, these are important things. He wasn't he wasn't doing anything really by today's standards uh, out of control. But obviously back in the day, it's all about power. It's all about authority uh, and so on. But so, I mean, let's let's put it into context. It's because you see lots of, um, you know, in your, your Twitter feed and so on, you see lots of uh, uh, correlations and parallels between what Nariño is writing and what's going on today in, in this part of the world. Absolutely. There's a new resurgence, especially in Venezuela, where I've done a lot of human rights research about, of this idea of a strongman ruler. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to crack down on speech that they find threatening to them and just toss people in jail, not in the dungeons nowadays, but in other tools like the Helen Conde aid and yeah. try to isolate them and cut off their speech. Mm. I believe it's a large part a reaction against democratic movements, mm. such as, well, this is over in Europe, but Belarus, the dictator banned Les Miserables. And he bans the song, Do You Hear the People Sing? Because he said, these are bringing in dangerous ideas from France and the United States introducing democracy. The dictators are beginning to tighten their grip. And rather like the Holy Alliance, which Spain was a part of at the time, Mm -hmm. the Holy Alliance sought to have dictators, well, kings, back each other up and really crack down on any kind of dissent. Uh-huh. It was a reaction against the excesses of the French Revolution, which terrified many of the absolute monarchs. But even before the excesses, they were becoming nervous. There's a threat to our power. Mm-hmm. So instead of liberalizing and democratizing to ease the storm, they consolidated power and you're translating a document, you're arrested. You're reading Voltaire, you're arrested. And I definitely see that happening today in many authoritarian regimes, that sort of holy alliance. I love it. Somehow here on the Columbia Calling podcast, we've managed to bring in Lukashenko. (laughs) I think it's the first time he's really, he's ever been uh, mentioned in 429 episodes. But so, I mean, this is interesting, uh, definitely. And you you talk about, obviously, people in Venezuela, and you've done a lot of research on this and political prisoners. I don't imagine the prisons in Venezuela being uh, too dissimilar to dungeons back in the day. It's true. I think they're probably pretty awful because, you know, Maduro is uh, and and his cronies, they they just want these people to expire. Uh, And you talked about the, is it the helicoid and stuff, that that building? It it is. It's uh, such a fascinating story, you know, that building put in the area of Caracas is kind of like a, a regeneration project and now being used to hold political prisoners, this futuristic building there. And so, so, but tell us about your research into Venezuela and so on, because we do have to talk about our neighboring country. And then we have to sort of mention that both, well, you know, by the time this comes out, there'll be a new president elect in Colombia. But at the moment, both um, uh, Rodolfo Hernandez and Gustavo Petro have talked about, you know, reestablishing uh, relations with Venezuela. And it, I, for me personally, you know, it's your neighboring country. It's a hard decision to make, but we're in hard times too. So, I mean, 
not to simplify, but I'd love to hear your thoughts as a human rights you've you've studied and I think you campaign on behalf of some of these prisoners. I do. It started when I was on a Hill internship, uh, Capitol Hill, and I was writing a project on the crisis of Venezuela. And this involved me reading a lot of Leopoldo Lopez's memoirs that he wrote in the prison cell that his sister smuggled out. And I read some other accounts of torture and brutality that if I didn't have context, I felt as though I could just copy and paste these stories to Antonio Nariño or to any political prisoner from that era. Mm. Uh, One of my cases that I'm working on now is Roland Carreño. His sister is on Twitter and raising the alarm for them depriving him of medical treatment and depriving him of his religious rights. Because as Venezuela is a Catholic country, they believe they need to see a priest every for confession, and they're denying their political prisoners that. Huh. So I wrote to the Pope as one of my contexts to raise awareness and yeah. several NGOs and nonprofits about this situation. Did, did the Pope respond? He did not. Okay. Well, he gets a lot of letters, I think. He does. Uh, yeah. So, so tell us what do you think then? As you're, I mean, you're heavily involved in this. How do you feel about the the Colombian move to reopen? Let's say, sort of conversations at the very least to begin with, and then it will move into trade and and passage of people. How do you feel this uh, with Colombia, Venezuela? I'm a bit cautious, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I definitely see an important need for dialogue and an important need for helping the refugee crisis, which I know Colombia has already been doing tremendously. Mm. What gets me weary is this may entrench the dictator's power further, Mm. since the dictators are relying on outside supports. And one of the things that kept Maduro in power is the people in his upper ranks were rather comfortable and happy with what was going on. And he was connected to a network of dictators I feel there's a need for democracies to come together to show democracies can do things. Democracies give you the free press and free religion, and you can express yourself without fear of being tossed in the dungeon. <laughs> so, or the helical aid. But I'm definitely rather cautious as to what level of reopening up there will be when it comes to the government itself, the Venezuela. Yeah, we. I mean, a few episodes ago, we we discussed, you know, about uh, on the we had the 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 host of the State of Venezuela podcast on, and of course, you know, he comes from a political standpoint, which uh, you know one understands, and political positions are are to be accepted and and respected, and and so on. And he had a lot of great points, and I remember all this thing. And we mentioned the Russian involvement. In Venezuela, we mentioned, and I think it's Chinese involvement as well, the Russian oil and Russian this and that. I don't know if I'm 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 pushing the limits of of yours and my knowledge, but surely this the the war with Ukraine uh, must be it must be affecting Russia's let's say foreign policy on places like Latin America, South America. Could this weaken Maduro then if Russia sort of, let's say turns, you know, turns its back a bit on Venezuela. 
Possibly. Mm. There seems to be a lot of discontent, understandably, from the people. Mm. And there is a Simon Bolivar quote, which says, I'm going to paraphrase because he wrote it in a very long part of the letter <laughs> of Jamaica, how we have a duty to stand for people who are fighting for their rights. Mm. And in that case, I hope that the members of the democratic world will come and get around again in solidarity for the Venezuelan people, the way we are showing solidarity for the people of Ukraine. Mm. Since I definitely do believe this is a global situation of imperialism versus democracy, and not to say it's identical to what Nariño and Sucre saw with the Holy Alliance, because obviously different times and different contexts, but there definitely is a very solid parallel there that I believe we could learn from. Mm. This is, I mean, this is really, to me, really so interesting that we can take, and I, and I know that history repeats itself, and that this is oft said, but this is you know, a history, when we talk about Nariño, which is not overly known, and Rica Orte, less so, unless you're Colombian and you've had to study a little bit of it in, in school. Although I, I do believe that history and geography are kind of being cut from, from public education here. So, you know, therefore, aren't we condemned to repeat the errors of the past if we don't learn about them? But uh, people will talk about Nariño and people here will talk about Ricorte, but beyond these frontiers, it's really unknown. And now you are being able to, to link it not only to Les Miserables, but also to Ukraine, Russia, Belarus. Uh, that's pretty cool. I mean, I have to say, that's to be able to do this, where are we going to be able to read some of this stuff? Because you, you must be writing it down. Le droit et la liberté on WordPress. Okay, le droit et liberté. I do. I have my URL in French. Because I take a lot of my inspiration from everything French. And that's where I publish a lot of my formal research. I also write occasionally smaller articles for Medium and Odyssey. And for my human rights translations, I translated Defensa de Nariño, and that will be on my blog, human rights in many languages. <laughs> that probably was one of my most difficult translations because even though I understood what was happening, the level of detail was so horrific while translating it. I just felt like I'm so glad that Nariño was able to get out of that prison, but all my solidarity with the political prisoners today going through that situation what I mean, when you talk about the level of detail, we're talking about torture. Very, yeah. There were some graphic depictions of the aftermath of torture, which um, stayed with him for the rest of his life. Since when he was two imprisonments later, he was addressing members of Congress, the Congress of Kukata, and he felt that some of the delegates were not taking seriously the concern of Spanish reconquest and the brutality the Spanish committed. Mm. And he actually revealed several of his stars to members of Congress. Mm. He and was... This, this all incurred in, in uh, the third, let's say, third prison sentence. Yes. He was, after he um, escaped, um, well, he was freed from the second prison sentence to Cartagena and La Bagatella, People were very dissatisfied with the leadership that was trying to cater to Spain, but trying to stay middle of the road of Jorge Luzano. Mm. There were massive protests, and in the mixture, Nariño became president. Mm. 
but Nani, he had to manage a lot of Colombia instead of unifying and fighting Spain, decided to fight each other. So each state wanted to be its own country. They all fought each other, allowing for the Spanish to come back and rather brutally reclaim them. The entire population of Venezuela in particular endured some of the worst fronts as two-thirds of the population, it's estimated, were massacred. There's no real number. Oh, uh, we would, yeah, the, the pop- two-thirds of the population massacred. How many have left the country now? I mean, it's, is it a sixth or something? I mean, it's got to be, the figures have got to be, let's say, uh, com- comparable. <laughs> it's, it's very comparable. Yeah, that's bizarre, isn't it? How these things come around. Come around. I mean, you really... Tell us that now, little side anecdote, because we've talked about this stuff. I know that you uh, you went and heard one of my uh, most favorite, and anyone who knows me will know that to be somewhat sarcastic, one of my most favorite Colombian politicians speak uh, in Colombia, uh, uh, the vice president, Marta Lucia Ramirez. You... You heard her speak in in Washington, and I, I, you know, I get that we can't talk too much about it. But what was the vibe you got from her? Well, it was a vibe that, let's just say, I would not want. I faced many disagreements with her. <laughs> Did she? Was she talking about the? Because she she always sort of. Her, one of her big well it's, it's a it's a government policy to always talk of uh, anyone who protests is obviously you know either a venezuelan uh troublemaker they've always they've tried to tie stuff to russia did she talk about that stuff she didn't she ah. used a lot of very eloquent words but i had difficulty finding the message of the speech so it was kind of a, a performance an act you think yeah, I. Yeah, she doesn't. You know, you don't. You don't feel uh, convinced by her. Uh, it feels like, yeah. And for you know, we have to talk. She's the first female uh, vice president in Colombia. This is all fantastic. But there's so many questions surrounding her authority. Uh, obviously, there's the questions surrounding. Her husband and his uh, influences. We're not. You don't have to mention Ali. We'll talk about this, but influences Memo Fantasma, the investor in the building. Her brother was found guilty. I think it was transporting heroin to the U.S. Yeah, it's there. It's in the Southern District of New York, uh, and she talks about it as a family tragedy and so on. And then she talks about the fact that her husband would never have known Memo Fantasma, but. He was he was a, a, a major investor in these things, and so you sort of wonder how I don't know how someone could get up on stage and make you know and talk about certain things when you've got so many question marks. But then that's politics here, and and then that's politics in general. I mean, you, know, you had President Trump with, and there was a you know there's a, a fair few question marks there as well about business practices and family relationships and so on. Uh, but I mean, I think it's really interesting that you didn't get. I, I think it's safe to say that the best feeling from her. 
Nice. <laughs> no, that, there we go. There, you, you have not compromised yourself in any way, shape, or form. There, Emily. What um, have you have you had any other contact with, let's say, a Colombian or Venezuela activists in in recent times to you know to further the cause of human rights? I did meet Juan Guaido very oh. very briefly, but very far away. That was actually right before the pandemic, so I don't know if it counts how recent it counts, but he was giving a speech at the Organization of American States, and it was completely in Spanish, but I spoke to a lot of the Venezuelans who were there and heard many of their stories, and it was heartbreaking, stuff that people get arrested for or have to flee for. And I met a few Venezuelan refugees when I was writing about a protest for Ukraine that was happening in Washington, D.C. So I was discussing the issues with several of the participants and planning an article on how Ukrainians are failing right now. And in the audience were several Venezuelans who saw it as we are in the same fight for democracy against autocracy. Mm-hmm. And I have noticed Leopoldo Lopez, so other Venezuelans are now saying the same message. It's one fight against dictatorships. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, briefly and from distance, Juan Guaido, what was he like? He was very animated at the time as a speaker. It was a very cold February night, but he had a lot of passion when he was on stage. Yeah, because his, I mean, you know, just like Leopoldo Lopez and then, uh, you know, Juan Guaido's star is very much in decline. Uh, and obviously with the, the announcements by both uh, political candidates, presidential candidates, Juan Guaido is, is officially recognized by Colombia and the U.S., but what happens next? I mean, how, I, it's just, where, where does he go from here? I and mean, where does the money coming from as well to fund, you know, say his, his parallel government? Definitely a rather difficult situation since it feels like a stalemate. We all want something to happen. We're like, okay, Maduro, time to go backstage. Um, new leader time, peaceful transition of power. Peaceful transition of power is fundamental and very important. But Maduro won't budge. I was going to make a comparison with Maduro and I, Marduk, but that might be a little bit of a stretch, but he's not going to budge. And it just seems like the whole country is on pause right now. Yeah, I mean, we obviously there are other issues taking place across the world, the Ukraine and 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 so on. So Venezuela has fallen very much off the front page, and you know, even Colombia for everything that's going on, it's it's become it's becoming more difficult to publish long form about rather than just you know a news piece reporting on what's going on rapidly, six hundred words. Uh, yeah, not being able to explain a situation, but I mean, Venezuela, we're next door and we don't really know what's going on. I mean, aside from what is being told by the millions of refugees, but they are telling us about what, you know, what happened when they left or the new ones will tell us about what's going on. What, I mean, what is going on? uh, I guess in conflict resolution, because it's it's a hurtful stalemate, isn't it? As you said, stalemate, harmful, harmful stalemate. Uh, Because nobody's winning. 
And nobody's really benefiting aside from, I guess, Maduro and his cronies, because beyond that, it's got to be, I, I, it's just an existence, isn't it? It's a, there's a lot of disconnect, I noticed, within the Americas, both between the United States and Latin America, there's a huge disconnect. And as somebody who grew up loving geography and devoured geography books and politics books the way Nourinho did, it hurts me when I see people dismiss the region. And there's also a disconnect in Latin America within each from themselves almost, like with from country to country. Because when I mentioned the massacres that occurred in Venezuela during the War for Independence, I had several commentators, they were nice, they were not the trolls saying, wow, I had no idea. Is this why the patriots were so angry at us loyalists? I was like, it definitely was. Besides, war is extremely ugly. There's a large disconnect, and this is what happened in Venezuela versus what happened in the rest of the continents. Then when you get to the south of San Martin, it's a different story altogether. Yeah. We're going to San Martin, Bernardo, Higgins, and beyond. Yeah, that, we're not going to complicate no. life. Uh, that's that, that's yeah. another story. That's another time. And, and Well, I think, you know, I, I've, I've learned about Nariño and his history from you here, just chatting in, you know, 40 short minutes. I think you've got a great deal to share. So will you please tell us again your website so people can can look them up and, and drive some traffic and, and learn some more? Absolutely. So le droit, so it's a French word for rights, le droit, et La liberté is the French translation of rights and liberty. Dot WordPress dot, dot com. WordPress dot com. So we will put that up on the Facebook awesome. page. Uh, uh, I don't promise thousands of readers and stuff, but maybe, you know, if we get some more messages out there that these are things that are repetitive. I mean, that is. by your your dialogue today has shown us that these things are just a kind of cyclical. Um, Absolutely. You know? I, I find the rest of Nourinho's life, which are very brief to be as fascinating as well. After his presidency, he was again arrested by royalist troops in the South. <laughs> but when that happened, he refused to reveal his identity. And a lot of the royalists were relying on just they're wanting to stay loyal to the king. And he went out on the balcony and proclaimed before an angry mob that, that I respect your views, I respect your opinions, but if you want to imprison me, here I am. Like, that bravery and the whole mob was silent when they found out that actually was Antonio Nadino. And he was supposed to be executed, but either due to a intentional misspelling by the commander of the Spanish army or perhaps a moment of charity where he really did want to help Nariño. Nariño was sent to Spain, to Cadiz, in a dungeon instead of being executed. Upon his return, Bolívar made him vice president, mm. but there was a lot of political infighting because Nariño was someone that was very open about his ideals and his beliefs. He stood true to 
I want indigenous land returned. I want human rights for all. And he ran another periodical where he was extremely outspoken, which of course caused political controversy. He eventually retired um, and had several illnesses, tuberculosis, heart issues, poor vision, and difficulty walking. But during uh, his death at Via de Leva, he had a choir of monks singing to him. Hmm. I was trying to find some of the songs on YouTube. I found Miss Yami. And there's a few others I'm still trying to track down. And he mentioned the importance of showing peace and love even to those who abused him so badly because in the end, even they could change and come around to defend human rights. And I thought that was incredible where he wrote to Bolivar saying, what use is our triumphs if peace doesn't secure what our rights are? He's a compassionate person. He was. And that really touched me after all he went through, just that love he had. And his last words were, I've loved my country, even though everyone has tried to give me chains with all my heart, I will continue fighting against tyrants, but showing that love to others. Really interesting. I didn't know. Uh, now, South, South, Southern, as before we finish here, Southern Colombia, we're looking at Pasto. Yeah. And they were royalist. Very much. Wow. You mean, you'd think sort of like a more indigenous Andean region might be more sort of, let's say, uh, Republican, but no, they were royalist. It was extremely, an extremely complex hold on them, hmm. which involved a lot of the Spanish elites not wanting to surrender, hmm. mixed with their own um, historiography they created. Not dissimilar to today. Uh, not Spanish elites, but descendants of Spanish elites, let's just say. Uh, not dissimilar today. Emily, thank you so much for sharing all of this information so unselfishly with us. You speak so well uh, and so clearly about it. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the Columbia Calling podcast. Thanks so much. I'm a, a big listener and it feels an honor to be on this podcast. Well, as I say often, flattery will get you everywhere. We've been talking to Emily Hauscher. Uh, this has been episode 429. Thank you again to Emily. We'll put her website up on the Facebook page. And of course, now we'll go over to some words from our sponsors. But again, thank you for listening, everyone. This episode was brought to you by... Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. And also, our other sponsor is BNB Colombia Tours, experts in custom-made travel throughout Colombia. The team at BNB Colombia Tours can provide you with fantastic private experiences, creating wonderful memories of Colombia for a lifetime. Check out the website at bnbcolombia.com, complete the free itinerary form, and tell them that Columbia Calling sent you to receive a further 5% off their already great prices. So that's bnbcolombia.com and of course latinnews.com. Thank you for everyone for listening. That's us. Farewell and of course check back next week. Bye-bye.